Good afternoon, everybody, and welcome to the joint Cato Mercatus Conference of Fed for Next Time Ideas for a Crisis Ready Central Bank. This conference is devoted to exploring possibilities for reforming the Fed to better prepare it for future crises, while at the same time protecting it from fiscal dominance and, importantly, protecting ourselves and our democracy from dominance by the Federal Reserve. Today's session is on modernizing liquidity provision, and I'm very pleased to introduce its moderator to you, CNBC's finance editor, Jeff Cox. Jeff, take it away. Thank you, George, for your kind introduction. And I also want to thank the Cato Institute and Mercatus Center for hosting this important conference, which comes at, as we all know, a very critical time. As someone who spends probably way too much time thinking about these things, it's actually it's a pleasure to be around and to uh, geek out as much about these kinds of issues as I do. I'm looking forward to a vigorous about some of the really important challenges facing facing the Fed and in central banks ahead. And indeed, that's what we want to focus on today, not a look back on the lending and liquidity programs that the Fed has provided during the coronavirus pandemic. Another a view to the future. Um, we know one of the questions is just how can the Fed shape monetary policy so it need not be so reactive when facing future crises, but rather have a more solid fundamental base from which to address flare-ups in market functioning. Of course, all that while also focusing on its dual mandate of full employment price stability. We have three esteemed panelists on board today to discuss just such issue. Pleasure to introduce them. First up, I'd like to introduce Bill Nelson. Bill is the executive economist at the Bank Policy Institute. He's previously served as executive managing director, chief economist, and head of the House Association. And he's been chief economist of the Clearinghouse Payments Company. Prior to joining the Clearinghouse, 2006 director of the Division of Monetary Affairs at the Fed, where his responsibility monetary policy analysis, discount when institution supervision. So as you know, Bill is a, in a unique position to talk about some of these issues. Uh, today, he's going to speak to us about how to problems at financial institutions. Uh, just a note that Bill is coming to us from a fairly remote location in, uh, let's just say, parts unknown. So we have some issues with Bill's connectivity today. Um, after Bill, we'll have Jimmy's Associate Director of Research at the C.D. Howe Institute. Uh, he's in services and monetary policy research programs at the Institute. He's written on a range of topics, including the link between demographics and monetary policy, how blockchain technology will impact the economy, and the importance of the financial services sector in trade negotiations. Now, prior to our institute in early 2015, Jeremy worked in the International Tax Department at Deloitte & Touche in both the financial stability and international departments of the Bank of Canada. And he's also been a lecturer at Brandeis University, where he taught and microeconomics while completing his PhD studies today, he's going to between the Bank of Canada and the Fed and how they could be instructive for the Fed going forward. Uh, joining Bill and Jeremy is David Antofalto. David is Senior Vice President in the Research Division at the St. Louis Fed. He was a professor of economics at the University of Waterloo and Simon Fraser University before joining the Fed in, in July 2000. Uh, David's published several articles in leading economic journals, and he He's been 
invited as a visiting around the world. And in 2009, he was awarded the prestigious Bank of Canada Fellowship Award for his contributions in the area of money, banking, and monetary policy. David today is going to talk about the repo facility. So with the introductions aside, let's move into the conversation. Bill, are you there with us? Can you get us started? Um, not hearing from Bill. So maybe we could just jump in. Um, you, uh, Jeremy, you want to you want to take the mic? Introduction and for the invitation. Thanks also to Cato and the Mercata Center. Honestly, I'm honored to be here today, even if, uh, in this virtual capacity. Uh, since I'm unique on this panel in terms of my focus on the Bank of Canada, I thought I'd start with the mandate of the bank and how it differs from the Fed. The primary difference in Canada is that we do not have a dual mandate. The bank is an inflation-targeting central bank. This objective is formalized under a renewable joint agreement, typically every five years between the Bank of Canada and the Government of Canada, specifying our 2% target for inflation, which is the midpoint of a 1% to 3% range. The next renewal, interestingly, given the times, comes next year. In normal times, the bank simply adjusts the overnight policy rate in order to hit the inflation target. Obviously, in crisis times like we face today, the bank, much like the Fed, uh, must take more comprehensive measures to ensure the financial system continues to play its role of providing credit where it's needed. In terms of this crisis, the bank began its COVID-related stimulus by lowering the overnight rate by 150 basis points over three 50 basis point cuts in the span of just a few weeks. These moves brought the overnight rate to 25 basis points, which is a rate that the bank considers to be its effective lower bound. But it's quickly apparent, as it was here, that this crisis went far beyond conventional monetary policy. Of particular concern were strains in the Government of Canada bond market, typically the safest Canadian dollar-denominated asset one can trade. In normal times, the bank purchases small amounts of Government of Canada debt on an ongoing basis to fine-tune its balance sheet in order to hit the 2% target, However, in just two months between the middle of March and the middle of May 2020, Government of Canada bonds on the bank's balance sheet increased by about 50%. While the size of these purchases certainly were extraordinary, Government of Canada bonds don't take monetary policy in Canada out of its traditional realm. However, many of the other purchase programs that the bank has introduced, including provincial and private sector uh, credit asset purchases, those do. And these purchases necessarily cause the bank to take on credit risk. And while the details of these asset purchases to date, including the eligible issuers and the eligible assets, point to the fact that the bank is looking to mitigate as much of this risk as possible, the reality is that it can't completely negate this concern. And this risk gets exacerbated through longer term purchases since the bank must take on the additional term risk. And unlike short duration debt, which it can let expire and roll off the balance sheet, longer term assets likely have to be sold in secondary markets bringing an additional political risk if the reduction in the balance sheet is for the purpose of inflation control, but might raise the borrowing costs for the issuer. And I'll return to these risks uh, in a bit. So while it's true that these purchase programs take the bank outside of its usual remit, it is pretty clear that the bank acted within its authority to do what it's done so far. The Bank Act in Canada is very specific on the business and the powers of the bank, stating quite clearly that the bank may buy and sell securities issued or guaranteed by the government of Canada or any province. And for the purposes of monetary policy or promoting financial stability, if the governor is of the opinion that there is a severe and unusual stress in a particular financial market or in the system, they may buy and sell 
from or to any person, any securities, any other financial instruments to the extent that the governor deems necessary. So it's pretty clear. Um, not surprisingly, this being Canada and all, uh, we haven't seen sort of the angry voices or the politicization of the bank's actions to date. Uh, that said, as I just mentioned, there's, there is credit and political risk involved with purchasing non-sovereign assets, and there could be implicit and or explicit pressure to keep rates low with the large private and public sector debt overhangs that we've incurred as a result of the crisis and that we had in Canada coming into this crisis. So this pressure to keep rates low will have direct consequences for inflation targeting central bank and the credibility that the Bank of Canada has in hitting that target. To my mind, uh, there really are two questions as it relates to modernizing liquidity. First, are there ways to mitigate this credit and political risk? And then second, whether the dizzying array of new emergency facilities the bank has introduced during this crisis suggests the, lead, the need to look anew at which liquidity tools the bank should make permanent, uh, make a permanent part of their toolkit. On the first question, the bank is gonna face, as I mentioned, a delicate balancing act with respect to debt management across Canada. As the economy reopens and inflation starts to reappear, the pressure to keep artificially keep those rates low to keep debt service costs down could easily jeopardize the bank's credibility and independence. And Canada has benefited tremendously from strong fiscal and monetary anchors over the last 25 years, including through low risk premiums on government debt. One idea that I floated around with Mark Zelmer, who used to be the deputy superintendent at Canada's federal financial institutions regulator, is the idea of minimizing the credit and political risk uh, by exchanging provincial and private sector debt with Government of Canada debt. The bank would still have the power to intervene as it saw fit, but it puts the federal government in charge of managing the credit risk associated with this debt, leaving the bank to deal with only the federal government debt of which it has much more experience, hopefully simplifying the process of achieving its inflation target. And this exchange wouldn't change the size of the bank's balance sheet. On the second question of a more permanent market-wide emergency liquidity facility, we do need to first acknowledge how successful the Bank of Canada programs have been so far. They clearly reduced spikes in illiquidity in the Government of Canada debt market. They reduced the provincial borrowing spreads over federal debt, as well as bringing the provincial borrowing costs close to levels actually seen before the crisis. And they reduced illiquidity in corporate bonds. In the short run, then, the case can definitely be made for a successful intervention on the part of Canada's central bank, as it helped put a floor on the fallen economic activity and avoided turning an economic downturn into a financial crisis. So the question, though, then is still, could it have done better? Might the spikes in illiquidity spreads and borrowing costs have been less sharp if markets knew uh, transparently what the bank was going to do when it and it stepped in? And I wrote about this topic five years or so ago, and in the years since, there has been some movement on this front in Canada. Right around the time I wrote the paper, the bank introduced a permanent term repo facility, which is market-based, runs through an auction, and extends the term from overnight to one to three months. In crisis period, the bank starts with this facility and extends it as it sees fit. But the spikes in illiquidity I mentioned, as well as all the new programs introduced, suggest that there's limitation to this facility. To the extent that more uh, permanent facilities are needed up front, two questions that must be dealt with by the bank are first, how to deal with moral hazard concerns, and then second, how to design the auction to ensure the bank receives a competitive price for a given quantity of funding, which ought to generate then an optimal distribution of liquidity among bidders. Now, in terms of moral hazard, there's, there's different ways to deal with it, but one option might be to set up any emergency facility such that the market can only access it when certain negative financial metrics are met. 
and this is a market-wide uh, financial metric. So this has the dual benefits in that it reduces the stigma in accessing the facility and it reduces moral hazards since financial institutions have to wait until market conditions are sufficiently stressed. The bank did add what they call the contingent term repo facility, which is at their discretion to activate uh, when certain metrics are met, though we don't know what those metrics are in advance. This facility, though, is bilateral. It's a non-auction facility, so it doesn't guarantee that competitive pricing and optimal distribution. On this a similar note, a less discussed issue, and perhaps a less exciting one, is around the auction design that gets us closer to these market outcomes. For market-based liquidity facilities in Canada, the bank typically uses what's called a multiple yield auction. It's a single round event and all funds are distributed simultaneously with a maximum number of bids allowed, where the bid contains a value, a price, and the collateral it's pledging. Both the value and the price uh, are subject to preset minimums. Winning bids are awarded such that the highest bid is accepted first and the yield bid is paid. And this continues until the, all the funds that are intended for allocation are sold. There's a few issues, though, that arise with this form of auction. First, there's the distortion of optimal pricing and distribution of ideal liquidity, which occurs whenever you restrict the amount of bids because you limit the ability of bidders to create complete demand functions. Furthermore, the, if you set a minimum rate, it must be set incredibly carefully as the bank could run the risk of mispricing and restricting the creation of its own supply curve. So to create a competitive equilibrium for a particular collateral, ideally you have unlimited bidding and you don't set the minimum rates much above, if at all, the overnight target rate. For me personally, and I've written a book that I prefer is the product mix design, which has been used by the Bank of England. In this design, all bidders consisting of various financial institutions may make an unlimited number of bids, each bid includes an offer of a per unit price using each variety of collateral. So for example, one bid might be for $500 million at 5.5% for the strongest collateral, 5.8% for weaker, and 6% for the weakest collateral. These unlimited bids using different forms of collateral allow bidders to create complete demand functions. Once all bids have been sent in, the auctioneer would then analyze them and establish a minimum cutoff price for each variety of collateral. The auctioneer is able to analyze demand, a complete demand, before choosing, the before choosing the prices. In making the determination for the cutoff prices, the auctioneer must consider the central bank's primary objective. If total liquidity is the primary objective, for example, then the cutoff yields and all the bids above this cutoff have to create this amount of funding for the market. So the technical points get in, you know, maybe a bit further than we need to necessarily go. But ideally, what you're trying to achieve is a system whereby the surplus is maximized for both the bidder and the central bank, setting up a competitive price and optimal allocation of liquidity across the market in a stressful time. So what I'll maybe I'll hear I'll, I'll stop here and I'll close by saying that with respect to this crisis, we haven't faced a backlash in Canada over the assets that the bank has purchased. And we have seen the bank move fast as well, suggesting that speed of implementation isn't necessarily an issue. But there are future risks in the form of credit and political risk. Those are real concerns that can be mitigated further. And also assessing the question of whether we could have done better if we had more permanent predefined market mechanisms is certainly a critical one. And I hope that some of the ideas that I presented here around dealing with the moral hazard issue and the proper auction design might resonate with some of the folks that are listening in. So I look forward to the Q&A and thanks again for, uh, for the invitation. I'm sorry, Jeremy, thank you for that. Uh, I'm sorry, I was muted for a second. Um, 
Do, uh, do we have Bill? Yep, I'm here. Can you hear me? Bill, it's great, terrific. Yeah, we yeah we, we can hear you. Thanks so much, Bill. Take it uh, take it away, Bill. Okay, thanks. Uh, so uh, I'd like to thank George Selgin and uh, David Beckworth as well as uh, Beckworth as well as Cato and Mercatus uh, for the invitation to speak today, and thank you, Jeff, for the kind introduction. Uh, I'm honored to be asked to speak on the tools the Fed should have to provide liquidity to the financial system. We were reminded again in March and April how critical those tools are. So in my remarks, I will discuss why it is important that the Fed be able to address liquidity problems in the financial system, the authorities the Fed has to execute that responsibility, and then recommend some changes to those authorities. While central banks lend for a variety of reasons, including importantly to execute their monetary policy responsibilities, I'm gonna focus on lending to address liquidity problems at financial institutions. By liquidity problem, I mean when a solvent institution is unable to make payments when due or provide funds on demand because it has neither the cash on hand nor the ability to raise it. A liquidity default of a solvent institution is a market failure that central banks were created to and are uniquely suited to solve. Moreover, liquidity defaults are often contagious, leading to liquidity problems at other institutions as well. Worse, if financial institutions are not confident in their own ability to meet demands on their liquidity, they will cease lending to other financial institutions and sell assets at fire sale prices, both actions that can turn liquidity strains into a liquidity crisis, as we saw in the opening half of the great financial crisis. To address liquidity strains, the Fed needs to have tools that are both powerful and flexible. Like Tolstoy's famous family, while lending in normal times is typically all the same, each financial crisis presents liquidity stresses in its own way. In 2002, for example, I prepared for the Fed an extensive detailed playbook, it was called the Survival Binder, including potential responses to a range of crisis events and an appendix of all the crisis tools available to the Fed and how to use them. None of the scenarios, however, looked like the 2007 to 2009 financial crisis, and I didn't imagine creating the broad-based facilities for non-banks that were a critical component of the Fed's response. The Fed has four different legal authorities under which it provides liquidity, each supporting a different tool or situation. First, under Section 14 of the Federal Reserve Act, the Fed is able to buy or sell treasury and agency securities in the open market and conduct repos and reverse repos of treasury and agency securities. These actions are, are generally referred to as open market operations. Section 14 also authorizes the Fed to buy foreign exchange and foreign government debt the authority used to operate the Fed's currency swap lines with other major central banks. Second, second, Section 10B of the Act authorizes the Fed to lend on a collateralized basis to depository institutions, commercial banks, savings institutions, credit unions, and the US branches and agencies of foreign banks. Importantly, the Fed cannot lend to bank holding companies or non-bank subsidiaries of bank holding companies under 10B and the ability of a bank to borrow from the Fed and then on lend the funds to an affiliate is restricted by Section 23A of the Act. The Fed provides three types of loans under 10B, primary, secondary, and seasonal credit. Primary credit is extended to generally sound banks on a no questions asked basis. Secondary credit is extended to troubled banks to facilitate a return to market funding or an orderly resolution. And seasonal credit is extended to small banks to help meet seasonal swings in deposits and loans. Lending under 10B is typically referred to as discount window lending and the interest rate on primary credit loans is often called the discount rate. 
The term discount refers to how the Fed originally extended the credit. It would discount or pay the bank less than par for a customer loan. It does not imply that the loans are cheap. In fact, the discount rate is usually above market rates. The Fed accepts nearly all types of bank assets as collateral, and generally banks pledge large books of business and household loans to the Fed, which are maintained as collateral despite rarely or never being used. Currently, there is enough collateral pledged to back $1.8 trillion in discount window loans, but even now, banks have borrowed only $8 billion. The Fed reports aggregate amounts of its discount window lending and all its lending and asset holdings in its weekly balance sheet release, the H-41. Details on individual discount window loans, including the borrower, are released to the public with a two-year lag. Although discount window loans are an important tool for monetary policy, the Fed also uses discount window lending to address liquidity problems at banks. In the past and current crisis, one of the first actions the Fed took was to lower the discount rate and lengthen the term on discount window loans, which are normally overnight, to 30 or 90 days. Loans extended under 10B generally cannot have maturities of more than four months, although they can be renewed. A third, Section 13.3 authorizes the Fed to lend to non-banks in unusual and exigent circumstances, that is, in an emergency, in part as a reaction to a view that the Fed used 13.3 to bail out financial institutions the Dodd-Frank Act restricted the Fed to lending only through broad-based facilities rather than to individual entities. The lending facilities must be approved by the Secretary of the Treasury. Loans must be secured sufficiently to protect taxpayers from loss, and loans can only be made to solvent institutions. While Section 13.3 lending has gotten the most attention as a lender of last resort tool in the last and current crisis, the Fed used only discount window lending to respond to liquidity problems for the prior 70 years. When I started working on discount window policy in 1999 and up through 2007, I confidently assured those who asked that the Fed would never make a 13.3 loan. Details on loans extended under 13.3, including the identity of the borrower, must be provided to Congress within one week and to the public within one year. Fourth, and finally, under Section 1313, the Fed can lend to anyone without restriction against Treasury or agency collateral. While there is no requirement that 1313 lending only be used in an emergency, it has rarely been used, and if someone has free Treasury or agency collateral, they probably don't have a liquidity problem. During the Great Financial Crisis, the Fed authorized Section 1313 lending to Freddie and Fannie if necessary, but no loans were made. So in addition to these authorities, I think the Fed should have three more. First, the Fed should be able to buy high-quality commercial paper or other money market instruments. The Fed needs to be able to respond to liquidity strains in money markets, the markets where banks and bank-like institutions extend credit to each other, either through direct lending or through selling very short-term instruments like commercial paper. In fact, the first fallout to both the failure of Lehman and the coronavirus crisis consisted of money funds selling commercial paper at fire sale prices. Because the Fed could not purchase the commercial paper directly, it lent to banks and broker-dealers with no haircut and on a non-recourse basis, that is, the Fed took all the risk, to get banks and broker-dealers to buy the commercial paper. It would have been simpler, faster, and safer for taxpayers if the Fed could have simply bought the high-quality and low-risk paper directly. Second, the Fed should again be able to lend to individual institutions under its 1333 authority. The restriction to broad-based facilities significantly limits the ability of the Fed to respond to liquidity troubles. As I discussed in a BPI working paper published in November, 
the restriction can be a particular problem when the Fed is trying to work with another central bank to address liquidity problems at an international financial institution. While several folks have observed that the Fed has done just fine without the ability to lend to an individual non-bank in the current crisis, we are not out of the wood yet. Third, the Fed should be able to keep its lending secret. For at least 70 years, the Fed has struggled with banks being unwilling to borrow from the discount window because there is a stigma associated with doing so. There is no unambiguous cause or fix for the stigma problem, but it stems in part from the discount window being primarily a rarely used backup source of funding, and nobody wants to explain to their boss or bank supervisor why they screwed up and had to use a backup source of funding. That problem is particularly acute when there are already liquidity strains in financial markets because a whiff of illiquidity at an institution can lead to an extremely costly loss of market confidence. I spent at least a decade trying to reduce stigma and it helped to be able to say that borrowing will be kept confidential. The Dodd-Frank Act requirements that borrowing be published even with a lag makes things worse. Now I sometimes encounter skepticism that stigma is actually a serious issue because the skeptic reasons, if the institution really needs the liquidity, it will surely borrow. The problem is that the institution will first go to great lengths to avoid borrowing, including cutting off lending to other institutions and selling assets at fire sale prices, exactly the dynamic the Fed is trying, is intended trying, lending is intended to stop. Moreover, often the Fed is lending to banks so that the bank will provide liquidity to someone else. If there is an intense stigma associated with borrowing, banks will simply not choose to participate. I also think one authority should be removed, although I reached that conclusion with some misgivings. In one case in the last crisis and in six cases in the current crisis, the Fed has used its 13-3 authority to lend to a special purpose vehicle that was capitalized by an equity investment from Treasury. The SPV then goes on and buys securities the Fed is legally prevented from buying. Recently, the SPVs have been authorized to buy munis, certain equities, junk bonds, and participations in loans to businesses. For two reasons, I think the Fed should no longer be allowed to lend to an SPV capitalized by Treasury. First, doing so essentially frees the Fed from any restrictions, leaving Congress with an irresistible means to support favored sectors of the economy. Second, because the Treasury is the equity investor and therefore the owner of the SPV, the Fed is lending directly to the Treasury, a dangerous and inappropriate action for any central bank. To wrap up, I'm gonna step away from what should be and discuss what is. In current circumstances, the Fed should do whatever it takes, whatever it can within its legal authority to achieve full employment and price stability as required by Congress. Currently, and for, for the foreseeable future, that means seeking to boost aggregate demand and prevent problems in financial markets from contributing to further economic weakness. With inflation running below the FOMC's target and the unemployment rate projected to be significantly elevated for the foreseeable future, there is a major risk of a deflationary spiral, an outcome that could leave the economy damaged for a decade. Thank you. And thank you very much, Bill. Uh, glad that you were able to uh, hang with us for uh, for all of that. Um, interesting stuff. Uh, David, you're up next. Thanks a lot, Jeff. Well, good afternoon, everyone. Um, it's a real pleasure to be here. Um, George and David asked that I discuss the merits of a Fed standing repo facility, which is an idea that Jane Eerig and I promoted early last year in a pair of St. Louis Fed blog posts. In, in those posts, Jane and I argued that the Fed should create a standing repo facility that would be prepared to lend against U.S. Treasury securities 
and possibly other high quality liquid assets. We, we distinguished the facility uh, that we had in mind from the discount window in two key respects. Uh, first, unlike the window, it would restrict collateral to consist only of high quality liquid assets. And second, it would grant access to non-depository institutions, in particular to dealers and, and possibly uh, even to all the counterparties that are presently permitted to access the Fed's overnight repo facility, reverse repo facility. At the time, we were motivated. We motivated the facility as a way for the Fed to conduct monetary policy in a manner consistent with the FOMC's preferred operating framework of ample reserves, uh, together with the FOMC's 2014 policy normalization principles and plans, which stated, among other things, the desire to hold quote no more securities than necessary to implement monetary policy efficiently and effectively. So Jane and I speculated uh, at the time that a significant source of the demand for reserves over, over other uh, high quality liquid uh, assets came from the global systemically important banks perceived need for resolution liquidity. So we reasoned that these GSIBs might be more inclined to hold higher yielding uh, high quality liquid assets over reserves if it was known beforehand that the former could be readily converted into reserves on demand and at uh, you know, pre-specified terms. At the time, the facility, um, at the same time, the facility would provide a, a ceiling on repo rates and eliminate the need to estimate the so-called minimally ample level of reserves. Um, so that is, the, the facility would basically just automatically flush uh, the system with reserves as, as it was needed for whatever reason, whether uh, for movements in the Treasury General account or for other economic reasons. And finally, we, we doubted uh, whether the facility would lead to any significant uh, form of disintermediation, as some people feared. In our view, it would serve mainly to cap the terms of trade in a number of over-the-counter repo transactions involving treasury uh, securities. Now, the title of this session is Modernizing Liquidity Provision, and we're here, of course, because of the massive Fed Treasury interventions in response to the COVID-19 pandemic. Um, you know, Jane and I did not tout this standing repo facility as a crisis tool uh, because we figured at the time that in a crisis, investors were unlikely to have much difficulty in finding buyers of U.S. Treasury securities. Uh, since the 2008-09 financial crisis, we've grown accustomed to the idea of U.S. Treasury securities serving as a, a flight to safety vehicle. And indeed, uh, this seems to have been the case uh, as the present crisis initially unfolded. So bond yields began to drop sharply in February, and, they, and then again following the Fed's rate cut on March the 5th, with the 10-year hitting a low of 54 basis points on March the 9th. But then something happened that I don't think anyone was expecting, certainly not I. Um, and in particular, after March the 9th, there seems to be clear evidence of selling pressure stemming from what looks like uh, looked like a, a repo run on treasury securities. That is for, for a number of reasons, you know, there was an enhanced demand for cash, which in, in this instance led to sales of US treasuries, uh, off the run treasuries in particular, I understand, depressing their value as collateral. So effectively evaporating a significant portion of the supply of safe assets. And this led to additional margin calls that further enhanced selling pressure and so on and kind of the familiar uh, doom loop. 
And when the Fed cut its policy rate to 10 basis points on March 16th, bond yields just continued to rise, with the 10-year hitting almost 120 basis points of March the 18th. So bond yields came down only after the Fed intervened, first with its discretionary repo operations, and then with its $1.5 trillion of outright purchases of securities. So this episode reminds us again, I guess, cash is king in a crisis, and that the U.S. Treasury securities are not always considered cash equivalent in a crisis. So an extra question to ask here is whether disruptions like this constitute a policy problem. After all, it's not like bond traders are unfamiliar with the notion of interest rate volatility. And when I glance at the data, you know, the absolute size of this volatility seems more or less stable since the mid-1980s. But because the interest rate levels are so much lower today, you know, a 50 basis point move is quantitatively much more significant in relative terms. Now, I don't think this would matter uh, much or be much of a policy problem uh, if Treasury securities served merely as a pure saving instrument. But as we know, for better or for worse, the U.S. Treasury has evolved over the past few decades to become a, an important form of wholesale currency. And in fact, it's, it's the most important form of wholesale money out there. And in particular, it's used widely as collateral and repo, you know, the so-called shadow banking sector. So its value as collateral, of course, stems in large part from its perceived safety and liquidity. And most of the time, of course, the U.S. Treasury market is very deep and liquid, except for, of course, when it isn't. And so then the question is, when it isn't liquid, does it matter? And if so, should something be done about it? So my own views on this question are, are continue to evolve, I, I should uh, mention. Uh, they're not set in stone, but uh, they're informed uh, both by theory and, and from my own uh, knowledge of, of the history of the U.S. Treasury market. In terms of theory, you know, what theory tells us is that in a fiat money system like the one we're operating in, there, there's no fundamental difference between account entries at the Federal Reserve and, and let's say, at at the Treasury, Treasury Direct, for example. They're just both electronic ledgers containing interest-bearing accounts. There are uh, legal differences, of course. Uh, only depository institutions have access to Fed accounts, whereas Treasury securities can be held much more widely. And of course, Treasury securities are more complicated objects because they, they differ from each other in terms of coupon, time left to maturity, and possibly other characteristics. And so for this reason, you know, as we know, Treasury securities, just like with most bonds, are traded in decentralized over-the-counter markets instead of centralized exchanges. Now, while OTC markets may have their advantages, after all, my understanding is, is that, uh, that bonds were initially traded in the early 1920s on exchanges and that the OTC markets actually uh, came to displace those centralized exchanges something that the Fed at the time mentioned uh, showed the apparent superiority of over-the-counter markets in, in, in this market. Uh, so OTC markets clearly have their advantages, but they, the decentralized nature of these, of these markets also pose certain challenges. Uh, and in particular, in terms of uh, the structure of communications and coordination, uh, when investors become fee fearful, bond dealers and other traders may become unwilling or unable to execute trades so that meaningful price information is lost in this decentralized system. Uh, 
safe assets may trade at significant discounts or premium. And not for any fundamental reason, but simply because liquidity or market participation or communications have, have vanished suddenly. So such events have implications that extend beyond uh, the treasury market because the yield on treasuries, as we know, serves as a benchmark for many other financial assets. And so, you know, unnecessary and avoidable problems in this market can spill over into other financial markets. So from this perspective, then, I'm kind of led to that to ask myself the question, in, in what world does it make sense to permit risk-free claims to fiat money, like government-issued treasury securities, to suddenly become illiquid? And you know, this, this question is, is a, a bit distinct from a related question, which is uh, one that asked whether risk-free claims to fiat money should be made illiquid to begin with, as in the case of uh, the issuance of non-marketable debt. There may be some reason, uh, economic reason, to prefer uh, issuing non-marketable debt. But to the extent that uh, uh, most of the debt or part of the debt is issued in marketable form, in what, in what sort of world does it make sense to permit the liquidity of these instruments to vanish suddenly and unexpectedly? And as far as I know, I know of no theory, uh, no model, that justifies these sorts of events as being good from, uh, for, uh, from a social point of view. So there's no good reason. And so I continue to believe their repo facility makes a lot of sense for the U.S. economy. And I want to stress that this is not just a hypothetical proposal. I mean, many of the world's leading central banks operate such facilities. Um, and, you know, the Fed, in fact, has its own overnight reverse repo facility that's had in place since 2013. And indeed, uh, the Fed even implemented a repo facility called the, the FEMA, the Foreign and International Monetary Authority Repo Facility, just in March of this year, uh, where foreign central banks can borrow funds at 25 basis points above IOER by presenting U.S. Treasury securities as collateral. So I think that the, the same type of facility set up for domestic purposes, uh, and ideally with Treasury support, I might add, uh, could simultaneously help the FOMC achieve interest rate control, uh, shrink, it could help the FOMC shrink the size of its balance sheet, and, and now also prevent unnecessary and violent disruptions in the treasury market by setting a corridor around treasury yields at different maturities. The size of this corridor could ultimately be adjusted even to help achieve yield curve control if that was desired. But this is a separate issue. So let me end here. I look forward to the Q&A. Thank you. David, thanks so much. That uh, good stuff. Um, really thought-provoking remarks from everybody. We've got a number of uh, we've got some feedback, some questions from our uh, from our viewing audience. So I'm going to get to a few of those things. Um, I, it's kind of general theme amongst a lot of the questions is just sort of you know how you do some of these things operationally, and um, you know whether you know, this is really just kind of a road that we've already gone down in, in some cases with um so get to some of the specific ones uh start with one with uh for jeremy jeremy you noted that canada has maintained strong fiscal and monetary anchors do you think this crisis will harm that track record or do you think canada is in a position to maintain its credibility 
Yeah, so I mean, I think fiscal anchors were certainly rightfully set aside, uh, you know, at the beginning of this crisis. I mean, the the, the government needed to step in, um, you know, with with a fair amount of stimulus, and so trying to hang on to your thirty percent debt to GDP target was not really realistic uh, in the heart of this crisis. But I do think um, that a credible plan in the medium run for getting back. Uh, to that, to, to the to the fiscal anchor that existed before is important not only for uh, for those risk premiums that I mentioned, but also because it makes the Bank of Canada's job hitting the inflation target much easier. Um, you know, we have, as I mentioned during the, during my opening remarks, uh, we've benefited from low risk premiums, but that that can change on a dime. Uh, we saw it in Canada in the 80s and the 90s. Uh, borrowing costs shot up for the government and forced a really painful rebalancing, uh, you know, of government spending in the mid '90s. And so we don't want to go through that again. Um, and so I think that the, the the right approach is sort of a medium run plan. And and that medium run plan also helps reduce some of the uncertainty that's out there that has perhaps we haven't seen as much uptake as some of the government programs uh, as we would have liked. Next, you know, my own uh, input on this is, you know, a th- running thought that I had had through all of the presentations. And uh, you can take this or David or Bill, if, if you want to jump in. Um, these are all great hypothetical um, approaches to some of the dilemmas that central banking is faced now. I'm wondering if you guys think that we're we're too far down the rabbit hole uh, with, with monetary policy to be able to, uh, to sort of retrofit some of these things into, uh, in, in, into what's to come. And I just throw up the well, jump ball. Uh, I mean, I'll just quickly mention just, uh, it's, I, I actually mentioned Jeff that I, I actually, these things are not really high. Well, I should say the, the standing repo facility that I put forth was not an hypothetical, uh, most of the world's leading central banks actually operate these facilities already. It's kind of uh, the Fed is a little bit unique and being a bit of an outlier. Um, perhaps Bill would like to speak in terms of the the other types of facilities, though. So, uh, thanks, David. I mean, so I, I suggested a few changes that um, powers that should be added and 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 at least one power that should be taken away. Uh, I think that those. Um, changes could be made. Uh, I wouldn't make them sort of in the current circumstances when when things are already uh, pretty dire, uh, and and I wouldn't be taking any authorities away from the Fed. And um, I think it's got its hands full without without adding anything to it. I guess it would be conceivably beneficial to add the authority to lend to an individual institution under thirteen three. Um, but. Uh, but that said, I mean, I think by I think by overall, the Fed has the tools that it needs to provide liquidity to the financial system. I don't. Um, I do worry a bit about many of the actions that have been taken recently in terms of they're going to be difficult to unravel. Uh, I particularly worry about the muni facility. The Fed has always stayed away from munis because they're so politically challenging. Uh, it's going to be hard to back away from that. I worry about the purchases of uh, corporate bonds in the in the open market. That's not clear where that ends. But uh, all that said, uh, Chairman Powell has emphasized again and again that the Fed has, these are emergency authorities of the Fed, and when the emergency is done, uh, the Fed will put them away, and uh, I, I sure hope that they can succeed in doing that. Jeff, can so I add let, a, let just a little point to because you're uh, oh, Sure, absolutely, yep. Yeah, so I just want to say, in, in 
to, to pick up on something both David and, and Bill said. So on David's point, I mean, Canada has actually term repo facilities uh, that exist and the contingent term repo facility, which is really about certain uh, poor financial metrics, uh, you know, being experienced in, in, in the market before it would be uh, turned on in the discretion of the Bank of Canada. All uh, That wouldn't take actually very much to, to change to be a more market-based measure, meaning auction and, and adding some financial institutions to the eligible counterparty. So I actually don't think it would take all that much uh, to, to add to to some of the, the, the facilities that I was mentioning. You can make part of the more permanent toolkit. And then just uh, a point on... Uh, on what Bill was saying with the Fed in, in, in Canada, I mean, it's like I said, the Bank Act's quite clear on on these powers that the bank has in extraordinary circumstances. And so the question really is, do you want to try and mitigate some of that credit and political risk? And one of the ways to do that, as I, as I mentioned, would be for the Bank of Canada, once it has intervened, uh, to exchange those assets um, with federal government uh, debt instead. For that to happen, the federal government in Canada would have to open up account in the public accounts to to hold those assets. But it actually wouldn't take too much to do. But I would agree that you don't want to do it in the middle of the crisis. This would be something for consideration afterwards. Okay, great. Thanks. Uh, Bill, I'm going to come back to you. Um, the uh, This is a uh, viewer question. Um, the Dodd-Frank prohibition of direct loans to specific institutions was meant to draw a line on too big to fail. Uh, could you comment on how the too big to fail moral hazard can be addressed without that prohibition? Yeah, I, I'd be happy to. Uh, so, um, it, in fact, there's been extensive work over the past decade to make sure that no institution is too big to fail. Um, the, and in particular, there have been you know elaborate changes to the to the to the way the the law treats the failure of an institution and the way institutions stand in relationship to each other that should make a, a failure of an institution, uh, even a large institution, sufficiently low cost uh, that, that it can take place. And if you look in market prices now, uh, you can see that, that there's a pretty hefty risk premium built into uh, large and small institutions. It's not hefty now, it's come back quite a bit, but nevertheless, the risk uh, premiums of large and small institutions both responded to the recent stress uh, in a way that you would expect if institutions were perceived as, as not too big to fail. I'd add that the Fed has traditionally, as I mentioned, uh, used 10B to, to, through the discount window for 70 years to handle liquidity problems. And there's no restriction on 10B to lend to an individual institution, no restriction on 1313, no restriction on uh, Section 14. So uh, for all those reasons, uh, you know, I, 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 think that, I think that the Fed can, um, uh, I think that too big to fail is, is not so much of a problem uh, anymore. And I don't think that um, having the ability to address a liquidity problem rather than a solvency problem at a large institution uh, will, will add to it. One last point, there are plenty of uh, restrictions that were also added by Dodd-Frank into 13.3 that, that would be uh, helpful. So in particular, uh, the Fed can't make a loan that isn't collateralized uh, sufficiently to protect taxpayers from losses. It can't make a loan to help out, even on a broad-based facility, to help out, uh, you know, an insolvent institution get out of its trouble. It can't make a loan to take bad assets off the books of a bank. So, uh, you know, I think that there were plenty of changes, and and all of which, you know, as a package, uh, would be sufficient to make sure that uh, no individual institution uh, would be bailed out. Thank you. Okay, terrific. Thank you, Bill. Um, Dave. 
David, this is for you. you say a little on the question of what counterparties should be allowed to take part in the standing facility and how you uh, keep it crowding out private repo transacting in normal times? Well, yeah, sure. Um, you know, I think at the at the minimum, uh, dealers should be permitted uh, access given the present regulations and institutional structure um, and possibly many other counterparties. I mean, th this is actually a, a debate that crops up every 50 years or so at the Fed. <laughs> I've been learning slowly from my readings of uh, Kenneth Garbade, for example, writes extensively on the history of the treasury market and the, the emergence of the, the dealer system. Uh, so about 70 years ago, there was a big discussion on exactly this question. I mean, who should be permitted to, uh, you know, to, to, to have access to this type of, uh, to the Fed? Um, I think the dealer banks, for sure, all depository institutions, possibly also, like I mentioned in my talk, the uh, all the institutions that are presently have access to the overnight reverse repo facility. I mean, why not? In principle, uh, you know, from my perspective, at least, uh, the more counterparties, uh, the merrier, although I can appreciate this might, might lead to some difficulties in, in some other dimensions. But in terms of like crowding out, I mean, I, I'm, don't know. I mean, I, I'm I'm a bit skeptical. Uh, we're, we're talking about, uh, you know, my understanding is, you know, these these are over the counter markets. There's a there's there's no single rate that that uh, governs this this market. These are uh, heterogeneous trades. There's different terms of trade. There's a distribution of interest rates, um, and um, I think that from my view, uh, I think that what the, a facility would do is not necessarily disintermediate a trade, although it could a little bit, but it would serve as a, as a credible um, you know, ceiling on the interest rate that a particular counterparty would be, be willing to uh, uh, offer or, or to get. So in other words, you know, it's, it's basically going to, I think, uh, serve as a, as a threat, a threat uh, for that would govern the terms of trade of the actual repo transactions that do take place out there. And to the extent that uh, um, a, a, a trader cannot find a counterparty, um, I guess the, the facility provides an option that uh, this trader can now approach the facility and execute a trade that would not otherwise have occurred. Um, and I don't count that as crowding out. I count that as the, faci the facility actually uh, permitting a trade to, to, to occur that would not otherwise occur. So uh, color me a little skeptical on the disintermediation uh, part, uh, although I'd, I'd stand willing to be uh, corrected with any empirical ev evidence if people have it. Thank you. Um, we have another general question here from the uh, viewership and uh, whoever wants to jump in on it. Um, all serious bank crises result from either misperceived risk, like 2008's AAA-rated securities, or unexpected events like a pandemic. I guess you know, we have to qualify um, this question with we don't know whether we're in bank crisis or you know, whether we're heading in that direction. But um, the question is, why keep risk-weighted bank capital requirements based on the perceived credit risks. Bill, you want to grab that? Sure. I'm sorry. I cut out and had to come back in. I guess the question is uh, why I have risk-weighted requirements and rather than say a leverage ratio requirement. Is that right, Jeff? 
Yep, yep, exactly. Well, um, so, you know, I actually think a leverage ratio, uh, leverage ratio requirements are um, a really bad policy. So, you know, leverage ratio requirements also weight assets. They just weight all of them equally. So it is, it's sort of just a particularly bad uh, effort at, at taking at risk weighting assets. Uh, I mean, the, currently the, the, the capital requirements of institutions, in addition to a leverage ratio as a backstop, you know, is determined in part by the, the bank's uh, uh, capital to risk weighted assets, by uh, the capital that it has in order to um, meet uh, stress in a severe downturn through the, as tested through the stress tests. And for many institutions, it's also done through um, not just standardized weights, but through weights that are based on their own projections of risk. Uh, I, I think that this system seems to have worked remarkably well recently with institutions coming into this crisis with an awful lot of, uh, with, with a lot of capital that served them well, allowed them to keep lending and actually been, uh, you know, a source of strength uh, in the crisis. Uh, you know, by contrast, you know, when the Fed, for example, passed the, the leverage ratio, most recent leverage ratio requirement, the SLR, everyone on the board made it clear that they only were doing so because they anticipated that that regulation would be a backstop because when a leverage ratio is the binding requirement, it has very unattractive properties. In particular, any institution that has to hold equity against assets, irregardless of the amount of risk, um, will choose to hold a riskier portfolio in order to maximize uh, sort of profit per, per unit of capital. Moreover, as we saw in the crisis, um, it's, it's undesirable to have institutions be penalized for holding low risk assets like treasuries and, uh, you know, and reverse repos of treasuries. Uh, you know, being penalized and making it costly for institutions to hold those assets are, are exactly what, you know, contributed to the gumming up of financial markets in mid-March that made even treasury securities, the world's most liquid securities, you know, momentarily uh, illiquid, requiring the Fed to buy a trillion dollars worth of treasury securities within uh, three weeks. So uh, uh, I, I guess I hold a, very, a quite different view that I think that... Uh, I think there's no there's no evidence at all that the current uh, situation was uh, worsened. If anything, it was made better by by risk weighted requirements and by stress tests that are effectively a, a very sophisticated way of implementing risk weighted capital requirements. Super. Thank you, Bill. Um, we have time for maybe one one or two more questions. Jeremy, I'm going to come to you on this one. It's a question about the mechanics of what you had spoken about. Uh, what would the multiple asset auction design? you discuss look like in normal times, particularly how would emergency unorthodox purchases unwind or would they have to be held until maturity? Yeah, I mean, so I, again, we, we have um, we, we have examples out there of, of the way the bank does the auction right now that actually don't don't differ a ton from what would uh, what I was recommending, right? So what I really what I'm saying is what you what you want, is is for the bidders to essentially tell you their complete demand function and what you want on the supply side uh is is to ensure that 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 the pricing you're receiving is is as competitive as can be and so i'm, I'm not actually sure that the mechanics would be that much different because you can still use discriminatory pricing which is the idea of uh of sort of that descending yield that i mentioned it would just all be um above a certain cutoff that the auctioneer would have to determine um once it receives all the bids and so i don't know that the mechanics or would take all that 
that much to change from what, what is currently uh, being done uh, by the Bank of Canada. Okay, Jeremy, Jeff, thank I you. The... David. Okay. I, I just missed the unwind question, the second part of the question, the part about the unwinding. I just missed that. Um, yeah, it was just uh, the, the the question of would would, uh, would would it you basically have to hold to uh, hold to maturity, or um, would they be allowed to to just um, to uh, un unwind into the uh, to the market? Well, I, I think so. We're not talking about extending the term to two to months, right? I mean, I think you're talking in that sort of one to three month period. So I, I my, my guess it would just be, it would just be held to, to maturity and then unwind naturally. I mean, that's, uh, I think the optimal way to go, because then the bank doesn't have to, uh, you know, venture into uh, selling in secondary markets. Um, I think it's a lot easier if it just unwinds off the balance sheet naturally, which it, it should, if we're talking about that one to three month term. Thank you so much. Um, we are close to the end here. Um, I think I'm going to turn it back over to uh, to George to deliver a couple of uh, closing uh, closing remarks. And I want to thank everybody for participating today. Um, great discussion, and uh, thank you to the panelists and for all the people who uh, who, who, who tuned in today. And uh, back over to you, George. Thanks, Jeff, and thanks uh, to all the panelists. Uh, Everybody, please join us for our final installment of EFED for next time on preserving monetary autonomy. And that's on Thursday at the same time as today's session.